you look at the decisions that were made, a lot of people made the same decision, right? They made the same ad, the same cadence. Major advertisers used exactly the same shots in their ads, exactly the same music tracks, et cetera. I, I think that that just reveals something to you about what people were thinking about advertising, right? They were, they were very lost. Hello everyone, I'm Julie Masters and you are listening to Inside Influence. Now this week's episode is a bit different to normal programming in that it's part one of a series of two mini episodes this week, all on the theme of epic storytelling. Now there's one thing I have noticed over the past few weeks of the pandemic, it's that those that are starting to really stand out in their space, either due to their leadership, marketing, advertising, or in pitching for new business, these are the ones that are coming at it from a completely different place. They're not pretending that it's business as usual or that it will be or should be ever again, but instead they're embracing the new rules of storytelling and they're using it as an opportunity to explore and connect at a whole new level. One where technology and how it has to change the way that we communicate, especially right now, actually increases rather than diminishes the impact that we can have. So we decided to go back to some of the storytelling legends that we've had before on the podcast and to check in with them on what's changed on what they've been noticing, both in the short term and long term of storytelling, and whether it will be forever altered as a result of what we're experiencing now. Now, these mini episodes, I'm hoping to bring you a few more of these because it's an awesome opportunity to check in with the people that we've had on the podcast before who are the masters of their space and see what practical ideas and tools they're learning right now on the ground and how you can apply them. So fingers crossed, we'll be able to bring you some more. Now, in this conversation, I speak with Ben Jones, creative director at Google and head of Unskippable Labs. Unskippable Labs is basically a team that sits within Google with the sole purpose of helping brands figure out what storytelling works on YouTube. So Google owns YouTube and what gets us to reach for the skip button. Now, you know, on YouTube, when an ad pops up and you can either press skip after five seconds, Google essentially realized that they didn't know what made us press skip and what made us not press skip. So they didn't really understand what it was about storytelling that had us engage and connect and take action. And so hence, Unskippable Labs and their sole purpose for being. A few weeks ago, I emailed Ben to see what he was noticing and whether our behavior was changing and whether COVID had in fact changed the nature of what stories do and do not get cut through. As per usual, he had all the answers. Now get this, globally, we watch over 1 billion hours of YouTube a day, 1 billion. So there is literally no one and no people closer to the truth when it comes to decoding attention, engagement, and what drives us than Ben and his team. This is his third time on the podcast. There's no prizes, unfortunately, but that should tell you how much of a fan of his I am. In this mini chat, we cover off the link between data, creativity, and storytelling bravery, the concept of grippingly human, and why it is the most important key to compelling storytelling, especially in a crisis, the mantra of in these unprecedented times, and how to find the words rather than just re-repeat the same words for an overwhelming human experience, the vanilla ice cream problem, why our media diet now contains incredible diversity. If you look at who you follow, what you watch, what you consume, what they look like, their voices, their tone, the, the, the lengths and the depths of the content. But advertising and marketing in many cases still looks the same. 
and why that is. And finally, the trends and brands that he and his team are watching closely right now. What I want you to reflect on here is firstly the term grippingly human. What do you think about when you hear those words? Or when you look at your own marketing messages, presentations, pitches, or leadership style, do those words feel like they fit? And secondly, very closely related, how much are you or your brand being held back right now from being as compelling as you could be by the fear of saying or doing the wrong thing? By the fear of being seen as clumsy or tone deaf to the situation? And how willing are you to let go of perfect in order to step into the impact that you could be having right now? With that, I will leave you with the man who literally has his finger at the epicenter of where all good stories go to thrive or die, Ben Jones. Welcome back to the podcast, Ben Jones. It's a pleasure to be here. Time number three. Always good to talk to you. <laughs> I was actually going to say that. Number three. This, yeah. I don't think I've had anybody on the podcast three times. And when I looked back, it was, it was pretty much on a yearly basis since the podcast launched that I've had you back. And every single time you've come back, there's just reams of new data, new insight, new ideas into what makes compelling storytelling in a digital age. And so when this pandemic first hit... I was I actually had, I had a question in my brain. I was like, I wonder what Ben and the team are finding right now. And then eventually I reached out and you were like, oh, that's interesting. We've just put a video together of everything we've been finding. Here it is. <laughs> so it was it was pretty much perfect timing. So let's 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 talk about that. Let's talk about the video. So you put yeah, it together. Okay. You put it together for Cannes. And the defining question behind the video was the work that you've been doing around what is the link between or what has COVID revealed about the link between storytelling, data and creative bravery, which I just think is such a massive question right now and at the heart of what a lot of leaders, CEO and brands are facing, which is what should we be saying? How should we be saying it? We want to stand out, but is now really a time to stand mm -hmm. out. We want to be brave in, in how we're going out into the world, but actually should we just be kind of hiding under a bushel right now and waiting for it all to go away? So why that question in particular for you? Our business is, is providing some guidance, right? Look at the data and how can, we, how can we be helpful? Uniquely, I don't know, in all the time I've been doing this job, this was a moment where we had no data. There was no precedent. There was no pattern. It takes a while for a new data set to emerge. So as the markets were being hit, you know, these teams would come to us and say, uh, what's happening? What should we say? How can you guide us? And we had no data, which for all of advertising is a super fascinating moment, right? What do you do when there is no data, when there is no pattern? What decision do you make? And you look at the decisions that were made, a lot of people made the same decision, right? They made the same ad, the same cadence, the same, I mean, it was, it was I won't name names, but major advertisers used exactly the same shots in their ads, exactly the same music tracks, et cetera. And I, I think that that just reveals something to you about, what people were thinking about advertising, right? They were they were very lost. Uh, what are my ads for? What right do I have as a company to say this? Am I going to get punished or rewarded for it? You know that that zero moment when the data was all gone 
it's pure bravery. It's a pure blank sheet. And it was fascinating to see the choices that people made or didn't make and, 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 and where I took them. So, you know, as a sort of historian, an immediate historian of the patterns of data, super fascinating for, for us. And because it, it is complete uncharted territory in every which way. And that's why I thought the word bravery was interesting, because when you have uncharted territory, that's kind of what you're left with, right? Like the signals have gone, right. the previous map has gone, teams are looking at you, the, the industry, the industry segment is looking at you, and all that's left really is how right. brave you're willing to be. And you, you had this moment um, in the video that you put together, and I'm just going to repeat it back to you because I thought it was a really interesting insight into where we've all been. You said, we all froze, we made the same ad, the same music, the same shots, the same sentiments. We feared for our creative lives as a misstep could banish us and our clients to the land of the clueless, the tone deaf, or worse, the clumsy opportunist. And for a period, all we had was the same words, words were handed around because we didn't have words for an overwhelming human experience. Now, you know, out of that comes phrases like, in these unprecedented times. <laughs> which that and the word pivot, if we could just leave that in 2020, I'd be, I'd be very, very grateful. Let's get into what does, what does storytelling bravery, what does communications bravery, messaging bravery look like in moments like these? I, I think that the thing that you, that you saw pretty quickly was the brands who knew themselves, right? The brands who had an identity and who had a, a clear sense of the role that they played in people's lives and the permission they had to play it. You could see those those brands move forward uh, where other brands would, you know, try stuff, throw stuff out, say things where you were like, ah, is that really a thing that you should say? Or I think the most common would say something and nobody would have a sense of who the brand was, right? I think that was a very common, we're going to do a, you know, a very muted message and it was just never associated with a brand. You couldn't tell was it insurance company or a, or a tech brand, et cetera. So I think one of the interesting things about, about bravery is it's not a one-time thing, right? You're brave because you've been brave all the time and you continue to be brave. And the brands that were, that were really strong and got credit for being really strong are brands where this wasn't the first time that they had stood for something, said something specific. You know, I think about, uh, uh, in, in the U S I think Nike or a Budweiser, they have a, they have a strongly established position and marketers experienced with taking risks. Uh, and they did well. Guinness, I think did a really nice job. It was interesting to see. It was interesting to see who, who sort of took a shot, you know, brands that were unexpected expected and they were like this is our this is our time and and frankly interesting to see the brands who just wrote it out who said you know we're not going to have a covid message we're going to exist on our own terms and advertise our product or advertise our service and people need it and and we'll put that we'll put that piece into the world go a little bit further into those that were doing it well there like you pick one in particular if one just flashes into mind who managed to get a strong message out there and do it in a in a non-tone deaf way who who was that I think Guinness is probably my favorite. What was interesting about them was they did a very interesting thing. The beginning of March, they released an ad around the cancellation of St. Patrick's Day. And it was beautiful. And it was about the history of Guinness and, and their legacy. And they said, you know, and go down to the pub and, and have a pint with a bartender and the parade will come back. And within a week, all the social distancing was out and you shouldn't have gone down to the pub and you couldn't. And they re-released a new ad with some of the same clips. It was about the 9,000 year lease on their property. And they said, we're not going anywhere. And so it was, you know, the same spirit, exactly the same sort of brand energy, uh, but a different message. 
And I think that reactive, that, that reaction, the sentiment in both ads where they didn't get dinged for, you know, being tone deaf, but responded very quickly and very agilely, uh, I think was a great example of a brand that knows itself, has a place in people's lives and isn't being brave for the first time. Really speaks to, as you said, knowing who you are as a brand, mm-hmm. as an individual and doubling down on that. So I want to just look at the look at the data for a minute. You looked at 40,000 effective ads on YouTube one at a time. I mean, I, I, how that didn't take you until the end of 2020, I'm not even sure. What did you see? Let's start there. What did you, so the, the effective ads during this period, what correlations did you start noticing? Yeah, I mean, the, big, the biggest thing was that, that the bulk of the ads that were effective didn't have any reference to the crisis. There was no change of messaging. There was no change of tone. They were ads that had been made six months before, eight months before, a year before. They were still running and they were still effective. So that was the, you know, the most massive signal is the ads that were working are working. You don't need to totally change and react and continue to react and your ads will still work. That, that I think, was revelation number one. Out of that came another sort of more interesting revelation, which was that ads that are more directly uh, associated with your community, your proximity, and had a sort of urgency, those changed quicker. Like as I was looking at tons and tons of YouTube ads, every single local radio ad had changed. Every single local radio ad was COVID specific, messaging was specific. And at that moment, the TV ads were, you know, maybe 30% COVID specific and 70% not. And some of that is it's, you know, quicker and easier and cheaper to produce a radio ad than it is a TV ad. So they can change more quickly, but also they're very specific to your geography. And that situation creates urgency, urgency of messaging. And so every single one was, you know, we're open or it's curbside or we'll pick up your car and sanitize it or or whatever. So I think that there's this, you know, kind of messaging hierarchy where some ads are more urgent to be changed. Um, and, and we saw that, you know, that sort of front wave of ads changing. Um, and now I think a greater percentage of TV ads is, is changed. A greater percentage of the YouTube ads are changed because advertisers have had time to make them, uh, produce them, distribute them. Um, but interestingly, the, the the second layer of it was we didn't see a huge advantage in doing that. We saw a, a you know minor increase in ad recall if you had a COVID specific ad versus not, but no changes in consideration or purchase intent and so on. It was those ads were no more persuasive because they were they were sympathetic. And we just recently published new research uh, looking at uh, markets across APAC in different stages of emergence. And we're seeing a similar kind of thing, that the, that the ads continue to work and that COVID-specific messaging does not necessarily have powerful impact, but that the strategies that brands are using are very, very local, right? It feels very different in Australia than it does in Singapore, than it does in Japan at the moment. And so if you thought that some kind of regional ad was possible before, you certainly are not thinking that at the moment. But does that speak to, does that speak to a level of comfort almost? You know, we're, we're locked down in our homes to whatever degree. We don't want ongoing reminders. You know, we're very aware of the situation. We don't need ongoing reminders. What we're looking, what we're looking at storytelling for right now is a reminder of, of our previous life, of a life where we were connected, where the life, a life where we weren't talking about it every five minutes, almost like a sense, right. of, a sense of safety, a sense of comfort, maybe a sense of nostalgia. Is that a driver, do you feel, that we just, we don't need it in our face every five seconds? I, I, I think for sure. I think for sure. And it, and it raises an interesting question, which is what is the role of, an, of advertising in my life, right? Do I need it to be my best friend? 
some some brands I feel like I have a more emotional connection with and I feel like their their social currency or their their immediacy is important. But most brands I don't. I don't necessarily need that from my car brand. I want the car to work and I'm interested in the car and I don't need to know that it has some, you know, special specific attachment to this moment. But I again that's the question of bravery for me, which is part of bravery is that I take a huge risk and part of bravery is that I stay the course. Is my soap gonna be my soap? Is my toothbrush gonna be toothpaste gonna be my toothpaste? Is my message about it strong and specific. And I agree. I don't think people, you know, it's in the news every second. It's impacted every part of our lives. I don't need my ads to be about it too. Maybe I'd like my ads to just be a different, happy refreshment, joy. I think you're right. I think that that, that is definitely a bravery piece, you know, mm-hmm. to go out without reference to the situation almost feels, I think for a lot of brands and leaders right now feels almost terrifying. Because again, there's mm-hmm. that accusation of tone deafness. You have no idea what's going on in our worlds, in our lives. How dare you be pushing a product right now? How dare you be pushing your own agenda right now? And it does take bravery to to say, you know, we were about this before and we're still about this and we'll be about this right. afterwards. I, and I think I think there's a functional piece, you know, like if you're a toilet paper company, I think it's you're well within your rights to say, like, we're a big toilet paper company and they'll they'll always be toilet paper. There's plenty. Don't worry. Uh, the toilet paper will show up as cotton as Cottonelle did uh, in the early days of the crisis. But there are other things that don't, you know, that don't have a role and aren't specific and functional and therefore don't need that kind of messaging. Something else that we've talked about before that came out again in the video, which was that there can be very little correlation between what storytelling works across demographics, across gender, across ages. It can be very hard to predict, you know, to make it that simple. But a through line that we can draw is, and I I love the languaging that you used, it has to have something grippingly human about it, which you get a feel for as soon as you've heard it, right? You know what that feels like. But how would you define it if I was going to go out there with messaging or with advertising or with any kind of marketing that had a grippingly human element to it? Yeah, I think that that I mean that that was really something um, that we sort of stole from not stole from John Halverson raised in getting from personalization at scale to empathy at scale, where personalization at scale is a sort of media strategy with messaging in mind. And this idea, I have a signal and I match that signal and therefore it'll be more powerful. Well, it turns out that's true actually, but it's not incredibly more powerful. It's like a little tiny bit more powerful because it's only logical and we're not logical. We're emotional and and rich and varied. And so shifting from messaging at scale to empathy at scale, I think is the most radical creative unlock of this of this sort of next wave of thinking about how we use signals. So what does it mean to be grippingly human? I think it can mean a lot of different things, but I don't think it's a rational match to a need state that is specific and mirrored in my messaging. I think that there are things that connect us that are not logical or not rational and that the non-logical or non-rational signals can be some of the most powerful. We did an experiment on this, which I think we touched on the last time we we invented this brand, Wonder Pilot. We tried to explore whether there was a sort of way of looking at the world that was expansive and focused. And if you targeted people based on whether they looked at the world expansively, you would tell a different kind of story, more emotional, more inspirational, more um, more aspirational. Uh, and if you were focused, you wanted, you know, logic, ration, instruction, 
feature benefit, et cetera. And when we did that, it did seem like that that existed, that there was a real thing there that was worth exploring. Um, it's not a product yet. It's not a creative strategy yet, but it just lets us say, you know, there's something here that we don't understand. And it has to do with with how we're grippingly human. I think the other piece of it that is an open question still um, is the short and long term. So uh, I can get a rational response. I need this thing and there's a message about it um, that works in the short term. I have a need and that need is fulfilled. But in the long term, as you build a brand, uh, as you look at the creative effectiveness ladder, which launched in, in Khan, Peter Field launched there, you know, how do you think about the ba- balance of short term and long term? How do I think about promotional messaging versus brand messaging and what's the role of emotion and targeting there? Uh, I think that's the sort of next frontier. Because we've always imagined long-term brand building, you know, this anthemic, it's universal, it's universally human. I don't think that we've looked at long-term brand building through the lens of the kind of signals we have available. And are there long-term brand building stories that are different because of the differences between who you are and who I am and what I can understand about that when I tell a story? So I think that's, a, that's the undiscovered territory. I'm looking forward to seeing what we find out there. And what's, what's the link there? Let's go back to that grippingly human part again. You know, we've talked before about the Netflix effect. So you could just briefly recap on, you know, what the Netflix effect is. Has that, has this kind of trend for things to become more human, has that impacted the Netflix effect? I I don't think there's enough data. I don't think that we know enough. I think that we're still choosing what we like and the more of it we choose, the more we want, which I think is what, what Netflix has taught us. And I think as more of our choices be end up more in our own control, that will be more pronounced. But I don't know how that's going to play out with 40 streaming services that are all ad free and the remaining ad time compressed into a few into a fewer sort of set of vehicles. I'm not sure what that's going to look like. The other thing about being grippingly human that immediately came into my mind was was Gogglebox. I don't know if there's anything, you know, watching human beings watch other human beings made by other human beings. <laughs> I mean, that's about as, I don't know if it's gripping, I haven't seen it, but I don't, that's about as human, a human vertical as you're going to get, I think. And the success Mm. of that globally, you know, shows us a little bit about what we're looking for and the the kind Mm -hmm. of in-depth view and vulnerability into leaders, brands, messaging that we're, that we're hoping for. Is that something that you've seen play out? I, I think you always want to have an eye out for the signals of that, like what's changing where and what does that look like? Uh, you know, certainly watching the explosive growth of TikTok, I, it was very interesting for me where, you know, you think, oh, well, at first it's a set of dances and kind of silly songs and musical. And then you see, well, there's actually a lot of really sharp political commentary and it turns out to be highly political. And there are all kinds of fascinating lenses and lanes of identity that are emerging. And we're just starting to see what those are. All of those things exist in some form before. It's funny, I saw an anthropological, uh, an anthropology professor speaking about YouTube in 2000 and eight, I think, when the Numa Numa guy exploded. And the way he talked about the YouTube platform was exactly what TikTok is now, this, you know, building on the songs of other musical experience, the sort of unfiltered joy, a different balance of making and consuming and so on. And I was like, wow, this seems very, this seems very familiar. Clearly, there is enough of a space in it and a way of connecting that that has uh, a lot of people have, have glommed onto. Literally a new frontier. The next new frontier yeah. of the many, which is, which leads us on to the vanilla ice cream problem, which, you know, I, again, I love the, I love the phrasing there. And that, as my understanding, please correct my understanding, was 
the fact that our media diet has an incredible diversity to it now. You know, we have ads, as you said, we have TikTok, we have Gogglebox, we have people we follow on a variety of platforms from the short form to the long form, dramatic to the, you know, intense storytelling to factual. In many cases, you know, branded messaging and advertising hasn't changed at all. You know, we have this huge breadth of what we enjoy consuming versus how we think we need to be seen out in the, out there in the world as a brand or as a CEO mm-hmm. or as somebody who represents a brand. What's the disconnect there between what we love to consume, what we know we love to consume and how we assume we have to be seen? It's interesting because I, I, I don't quite understand it. I mean, every time you think, okay, well, we've stuffed our lives full of every kind of media that there can be. And then you know, there was an explosion of podcasting and we love the podcasts and they're fantastic. And we want more of them in our lives. And, you know, then you think, okay, well, that's it. Now I definitely, my life is full and then TikTok and now it's exploded. And now there's a whole other layer and time and, uh, and so on. Um, I, I, I think that there's a fundamental conservatism to advertising and advertising people would, would, you know, wring their hands and say, no, uh, we can't, we can't imagine that, but it's still very, Positive on interruptive models, and it's positive on interruptive models with with very specific structures that have existed for a long time. Um, and I think part of the reason that we don't depart from them uh, is because we've built complex economic infrastructure around having those things be the same. Complex inf- economic infrastructure around a 15-second ad means I need very compelling reason to change that. Experimental, creative risk-taking, especially of larger brands and the media uh, ecosystems that support them, they just there just isn't room to evolve there. Uh, and so you start to see, you know, the DTC brands that are getting a lot of traction by uh, investing in influencers and by growth in social media and so on. But it's worth remembering that there's still all this embedded infrastructure about how you get product to shelf, the retail relationships and the supply chain infrastructure that mean that the bulk of the ads that we see are by, you know, large companies, large corporations. And the, the process of getting those to change is, is super hard. What's the role of perfection in that? Because I know you, you and the team have done a lot of work in the, the role of perfection or the role of that story that it has to be beautifully produced, um, you know, copywritten to an nth degree and contain a, a face that we recognize in order to be compelling. What, what have you found about the role of perfection here? Yeah, it's very funny because, you know, suddenly there are all these production constraints. We can't do shoots the same way that we could. And what we have observed is despite the fact that the consumers are very forgiving of that and will watch Zoom call produced ads, Skype ads, Hangout ads, whatever, most of the inventiveness of production companies is masking the fact that they can't can't do the shoots that they had before. And they're being very clever to produce something that doesn't look like it was produced during a pandemic, which is a different kind of creative bravery. Like they're using all this inventiveness to hide the fact that the reality they're in is the reality that we're all in, which is, you know, sort of a a very funny circumstance. I think we don't trust consumers And, you know, because we go through a long production process with people who have been trained to look at the ad and look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it, it, we sand off all the edges and sand off all the edges and sand off all the edges until we until we have a thing that looks like other ads. And as I said in the video, you know, when you ask somebody what an ad should look like, they think back to ads they've seen and ads they've liked and they give you feedback based on what they think you want to hear, which is a thing that looks like an ad. 
But when you look out at, you know, top 500 or top 1,000 ads that show up in any category, there are all kinds of weird things. There are 30-minute ads, and there's a, you know, business owner talking directly to people and saying something that's genuinely useful, and it's just as effective as the beautifully produced, you know, toothpaste ad or, or car ad. I, I don't think we've had the tools really to interrogate that. We're starting to get them now, and hopefully it'll open up our creative opportunities. Do you see it going back? Do you see the... I mean, once we've had, you know, a, a forced shot at imperfect storytelling, do you see it going back? I hope that it open. I hope that it starts to bring in, you know, a thread that gets woven into the tapestry of the ads. But I think we need, as I said in the video, I think we need more voices and more imaginations. Um, when you look at the ads that are effective, it's many more kinds and types than you think. And so um, I would love to see braver marketers, braver creatives, et cetera, emerge. I mean, I look at, I look at a brand like Oatly, uh, who I, is doing some of the most fantastic advertising ever, um, and they are, are doing it entirely in-house. I mean, the guy who runs their marketing is a creative director, and he hired his team, and his team sits in all of the meetings across the entire organization, product development and shipping and so on, and they touch every piece, and every piece of communication is brilliant, is infused with their voice, is hilarious. They know who they are. Uh, and I think that that's a wonderful model. It means all of the pieces work together in a way that I don't think they do when, you know, marketing is a silo that comes after product development and is only focused on paid media. And there's some other team that's doing some other little sliver. It just is never going to it's never going to come together in the same way. So it's almost, you know, taking a documentary style view of how you of how you put together your marketing messages, getting in into the DNA and the grain of what's going on in that organization and all mm -hmm. the miniature stories that go on within that organization and then pulling it, pulling it together. What trend are you watching really closely right now in the world of storytelling, in the world of influence? There are so many. I'm trying to tease them. I'm trying to tease them apart. We spend a lot of time looking at purpose and the implications of brand purpose and what it means in a world as changed as our world currently is. Um, and I think that that is, I think that that is a super interesting space because we were sort of stampeding in one direction and then, and then COVID hit and the combination of COVID and, uh, and broadly speaking, politics have hit in a way that has made that kind of brand purpose extraordinarily complex. I mean, Black Lives Matter and the extensions of it into international audiences the rise of authoritarian governments and their implications for which voices are trusted. It, it has made purpose enormously, enormously complex from, say, six months ago or a year ago. Those dynamics are going to be very interesting. I, the other one I'm looking at a lot is misinformation and disinformation, how we come to understand what's true and not true and how we think about what that means as we communicate as brands, as we communicate as, as individuals. The weaponized tools of information distribution are coming under increasing scrutiny in ways that are good. And for each of us, we need to figure out how to tell the truth and understand the truth and share the truth and rebuild reality around it. Uh, so I think misinformation and disinformation are, are where I'm spending a lot of time. I mean, you're in an incredible position. The, the intersection that you sit at between real-time data and impact is a perfect vantage point for that because you've, you've, not, you've got algorithms in there as well, right? You know, the mm -hmm. more we look at something, the more, the more it arrives for us. You've got echo chambers of me where my opinion just comes back to, my, to me over and over and over again and the role of misinformation in that. So, yeah, I think you guys are at, at the perfect place to take a look at that. 
I think I think we're all we're, I think we're all in a place to look at our own information sources and combinations and interrogate. I mean, the you know, the, the, the people who are interrogating us about how the algorithms work. I think there's great fair criticisms out there that we need to examine and look at. And each of us needs to as consumers as well. So okay. it's a it's a, a extraordinary time. Well, let's call that podcast number four. <laughs> same time, same place, or different. You're in a different place. The first time we spoke, I think I was in Bali. You were in Boston last time. I can't remember where I was. Now you're in. Where are you? I'm Vermont. Southern Vermont. Vermont. Yeah. <laughs> so who knows where we'll be this time next year? But I'm looking forward to it. Thanks again for coming on. Excellent. Great to see you. Take care. I'll talk to you next time. so much for listening we really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence now for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up an itch or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business an enterprise or spreading an idea there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.